So Matthew 9, verses 19 to 34, I mean 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is only by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Some habits are hard to break, aren't they? I learnt the hard way about that when we moved house. Uh, I can remember it was Anzac Day because mum and dad uh, had a public holiday so they could do some of the moving. And I remember it was 1984 because everyone made jokes about how our house and the new Prime Minister had something in common because it was in Hawke Place. The next day I went to school without incident uh, until I came home. I remember whistling as I walked up the front steps to my front door except it wasn't my front door anymore. Uh, you see, uh, as of the day before, my front door was now situated a couple of kilometres away, or a kilometre away, and uh, I'd failed to recognise that my old life didn't fit my new circumstances anymore, at least not if I wanted to get dinner that night. Uh, so you're familiar with the phrase that we're creatures of habit. 
And that's particularly relevant in today's passage. You see, there's people in today's passage, and I put it to you in our church and in our lives, that find it hard to step out of old habits following the arrival of Jesus. Uh, From what we've read in Matthew chapter 9, you'd see that the arrival of Jesus results in change. And so, as we encounter Jesus, we should be prepared to change. Are you prepared? Let's look. Sometimes we aren't prepared for the idea that an interaction with Jesus might bring about change. And the first interaction here is, in the first part of the passage, sought by the disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 14, John's disciples came to him and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So John the Baptist, one of the more commonly known Bible characters, we might remember from Sunday school that uh, he wore a cloak of camel's hair, he ate locusts, he lived in the desert, he was preparing the way for Jesus. John the Baptist is so fully aware of the importance of Jesus that back when he was in utero, uh, he jumped in the womb when Jesus, who was also in another womb, approached. John knows how important Jesus is. In fact, when John first sees Jesus walking past as an adult, he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God who's going to save the world. So John knows who Jesus is. And so there's no doubt that John's disciples would know that Jesus is important as well. And yet they ask this question. Presumably, John's disciples, like the other religious Jews of the day, can't understand why Jesus is doing things differently to what is tried and true. They can't understand why he's not fasting, because fasting was common among religious Jews of the day. The Old Testament law called for a fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, but if you were a really good Jew, you'd be fasting much more than that, twice a week, in fact, or even more if you wanted God's attention for something. Look at me, I'm fasting Please do what I say. So when the disciples ask Jesus about the fasting, they don't understand why someone as important as Jesus wouldn't stick with the conventional religious observations of the day. And Jesus' answer is one that we're familiar with from verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Now, a wedding feast is about the least likely time that you'd be ready to fast, right? In fact, when I have a wedding feast coming up or uh, some other feast, I'm usually fasting a couple of days beforehand, preparing my stomach for as much room as I can get for that uh, free feed that's coming up. And how much more when you're actually part of the bridal party... Imagine telling the groom that you weren't prepared to eat the reception dinner because you had other things on. Or uh, imagine telling the birthday boy that, no, you didn't want to share in any cake. It's just not your thing. It really is the height of rudeness. It is embarrassing. Sharing a cake, sharing a meal, is how we show that we're joined in the celebration, right? It's how we show respect to the guest of honour. So often when Jesus is at his most personal 
throughout the Bible. He's sharing a meal. Think about the feeding the 5,000. Think about the Last Supper. When Jesus is helping people, when he's living with people, he's sharing a meal, feeding and feasting. Jesus wants his disciples to be eating with him, engaging with him, celebrating with him. Why? Because he is there. Jesus also has that title, Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, God is with these people in human form. It's not the time for mourning and fasting. It's the time for feasting and celebration. Jesus has come to share in the lives of these disciples. And as a result, what he wants is for them to share with him. Jesus wants them to have that full fellowship which doesn't hold back, doesn't keep things in reserve, but lives life full to the brim. So for those who expected to fast, Jesus says, no, it's time to feast. It's time to live life to the full. That's because Jesus' arrival results in change. Before Jesus, it was fasting. But with Jesus, it's celebration feasting, fellowship, communion. Jesus brings us the best of life and as he says elsewhere in the Bible, he brings us life to the full. But then Jesus goes a little bit beyond what we might expect. Did you see that part of verse 15? Because the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them. We're not talking about a honeymoon, right? Which usually comes after the bridal feast. When Jesus talks about the bridegroom being taken, he's talking about his impending death. And what's significant here is that Jesus is talking about his death long before his opponents are. Jesus' death wasn't plan B. It wasn't something that he came up with when he saw that people weren't responding to him. In fact, it was God's plan all along to use Jesus' death to pay for the sins of his people and bring them back into his family where there would be feasting and celebration eternally. And so Jesus is saying that his arrival changes how we act. And he provides more illustrations of the point. Verse 16, the unshrunk cloth on the old garment. Verse 17, the new wine into the old wineskins. You might not be a winemaker or a clothing alterer. I was trying to find the way of not saying seamstress, but it just seemed weird. But the theme is easy enough to get, right? If I went to my mum's place for lunch and she insisted on me wearing the jumper that she knitted me when I was six, well, it's not going to work. The jumper would be in strips, mum would be in tears, and I'd be very embarrassed and a little cold. Or imagine if... I insisted on cutting up my food for my children well into their teenage years. You know, it's not going to work. Jesus is saying the old ways don't fit the new situation. The arrival of Jesus results in change. What he's not saying is that the Old Testament law got it wrong. He's not saying the old way was the wrong way, just that now it's not appropriate it's no longer the way to live based on the arrival of Jesus. That's why some of the Old Testament law is no longer relevant. Jesus' arrival changes the way we act. 
No longer are we to worry about special days and observances. No, Jesus has made us a new day that lasts forever. And no longer do we have to worry about making sacrifices as though we were paying fines for the things that we did wrong. Jesus is able to pay the fine and the penalty and the sacrifice once for all that doesn't require work on our part. Jesus' arrival requires us to change. This is an important point here because you might be thinking that uh, God is watching you here and rating your performance and rating you based on what you do or don't do. That's not how it works. We can fall into the trap of thinking that God will notice us when we do good or that he won't notice us until we catch his attention by doing something good like children sitting up straight to get the teacher's attention in class. No, Jesus has come to show us that there's a new way because God's no fool. Salvation from a holy God would never come if it was just up to us and our good deeds. Jesus has a new way of freedom, of feasting, a new way of love and forgiveness. And so those of us who live with Jesus aren't driven to serve him out of fear, fear of punishment, not driven to serve him to gain some sort of credit and bring the ledger back into positive. We are driven to serve him in response to his loving offer of life to the full. Because the arrival of Jesus, it changes the way we act. And so following on from the answer about the fasting, Matthew takes us into four reports of supernatural healing. In quick succession, you'll recall the woman who touches Jesus' cloak, the ruler's daughter, the two blind men and the demon-possessed man. Whichever way I summarise this passage would be understating its power. It's supernatural, right? But it's clear that from the reading we see that Jesus' arrival changes people from sick to saved. My choice of words there is intentional because Matthew makes particular reference to a word that suggests more than just a temporary healing and I'll get to that in a sec. The first healing is the woman who touched Jesus' cloak. It's nestled in the story of the ruler and his daughter but the healing is the first one in our list. We don't know much about the woman but what we do know paints a grim picture. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years She'd been to many doctors, nothing had worked. In fact, she'd suffered a great deal at their hand. No matter where the bleeding was, what we know is that because of the bleeding, she would have been ceremonially unclean by that law that they were living by. She wouldn't have been able to come into the temple to come in and worship with her friends and family. She wouldn't have been able to meet with people and would have had to have stayed by herself for a most part of her life. As such, to come out into a crowd of people like this would have been really risky for her, risk of being exposed and ashamed, and uh, also shows something about her courage and her faith and probably her desperation that she was willing to come out and risk this. 
So for the woman, it was no small thing to be healed and it was not going to be possible just by thinking positive thoughts. Her faith was accompanied by action, compelling her to risk that ridicule and discipline and come out and, and touch the one she trusted. And it sounds like a great example for us, doesn't it? And in response, Jesus has plenty to offer this woman. See his encouragement in verse 22. Take heart, daughter, he said. That is a term of endearment, confirming that he is willing to have her in his family. And your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you in this translation. In fact, the translations diverge a little we might miss a little bit of what Jesus is saying. The woman wants to be cured, but when Jesus speaks to her, he uses a word which means more than just temporary healing or cure, but a different word with a deeper meaning. Jesus uses the word that we might translate as saved. That is, Jesus is saying, your faith has saved you. All three gospel accounts of this interaction, in fact, have Jesus using this same word, even when in the rest of the narrative they use the words for healed or cured, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. So Jesus is offering more than a temporary rescue. Jesus is offering something which transcends just the healing from the sickness. Jesus is offering more than release from sickness or difficulty. Remember, in fact, last week, if you were listening to Andrew's talk, they lowered the man in on the mat who was paralysed and couldn't walk. And the first thing that Jesus did, why he forgave him. He gave him the eternal salvation, which was so necessary in his life. But the guy was still paralysed. And then he cured him. The curing was the icing on the cake. And if you look at the passage here, Jesus said, he would be sa- uh, Jesus said to the girl that she would be saved and she was saved from that moment. And she was cured as icing on the cake. Perhaps the woman's sickness has made her a bit short-sighted. Perhaps she thinks that she is going to get cured by approaching Jesus. But Jesus responds to her faith and saves her. Jesus talks of a faith that saves. He has eternity in mind. And for those who have faith, Jesus offers salvation. Salvation from the punishment that our sin rightfully deserves. And it turns out that the woman is connected to Jesus long before she touches him. She's connected to him by her faith, the faith that has saved her. The healing is confirmation of the change from sick to saved. Jesus saves people. Jesus changes us from sick to saved. So this is so reassuring because in a world where we look for rescue, a solution to pain, a solution to sickness, a solution to hardship, a solution to poverty, a solution to difficulty, you've got to say God has the solution, 
but he has a much longer term perspective in mind. Our Lord promises that there will no longer be sickness, no longer be darkness, no longer be pain, no longer be crying, no longer be death. Well, where is it? Well, he has done it. God's solution is our salvation, not just from the temporary ailment, not just from the temporary problem, but for eternity. And he is willing to share this eternal gift with you. You may be sick. You may be a Christian who is sick. God has saved you. God is willing to share his eternal salvation with you, even though now you may still encounter difficulty. Jesus' power is shown throughout this passage, shown again in the account of the blind men in verse 27. We don't get any indication of who the, much about these two blind men, except that they call out to him. Were they devout? Were they good? We know they weren't rich and powerful because as blind men they would have just been beggars on the street or relying on the care of their family. All we know is that they have enough faith to chase Jesus down the street crying out, save us, have mercy on us. And Jesus' response is relationship. He turns around, talks to them, heals them. In the middle of the account, though, is the uh, account of, or sorry, in the middle of the passage is an account of the healing of someone who doesn't display any faith at all. It's the healing of the leader's daughter. In verse 23, Jesus arrives and there are people in the girl's house mourning her death. That's what you did in those days. Nowadays, we pay a funeral director to officiate. Those days, they paid the mourners to come to the house and wail and cry and play the flute loudly, it turns out. So the girl is dead. And that's mirrored in what Jairus says when he came to find Jesus and says, my daughter has just died. So how about Jesus' response in verse 24 that the girl isn't dead, but just sleeping? Well, we can get a similar sense of Jesus' perspective on death by thinking about when he raised Lazarus. He was on his way to see Lazarus in John 11, 11, uh, and he tells his disciples that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And the disciples go, oh, well, if he's just sleeping, that'll be good. It'll be good rest for him. But then he says plainly, Lazarus has died. So his view of death is similar to our view of sleep. We get a picture of how Jesus views death as not permanent at all. And he is able to bring people out of death the way we might wake someone up. For Jesus, death is not the end. It's just a change of state. And Jesus can wake them. Now, if the bleeding woman had faith that saved her... Who has the faith that saved this young girl, that raised her from the dead? It appears she's done nothing, she's dead. But her father has a faithful, desperate, but confident plea that Jesus, in verse 19, Jesus need only lay a hand. The text is specific here, not two hands even, a hand. May only lay a hand and it'll be enough for the girl to live. 
So was it the father's faith that healed the daughter? And in the case of the demon-possessed man in verse 32, so too, no such confirmation of faith by the person who needed the healing. The man couldn't speak and second, he was brought to Jesus. He didn't chase Jesus down as the blind men did. So again, it would be wrong to say the common factor in these healings is our faith. It seems the only expression of faith from the, uh, in the case of the demon-possessed man was from the people who brought the man to Jesus. Maybe they showed the faith. Uh, and so too from the dead girl's story, she wasn't in a position to show any faith at all, but her father did. What was the common factor? The common factor is not faith in the individual. The common factor is Jesus Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the saviour. Even in verse 29 when he says, let it be done for you according to your faith, he's not suggesting that it's their faith bringing about the work. He's suggesting that he is giving permission for them to get what they had faith for. In one sense, this is an amazing view of how faithful prayer can work. Yes, the bleeding woman, the blind men, the girl's father expressed great faith in approaching Jesus to get help. But in another sense, it's a reminder that our actions are not what brings about this result. It's Jesus. Jesus shows his power to heal people whether, they're, whether they deserve it or not. Because even if you are cured, as these people were, that would only be a temporary solution. You're destined to perish unless you have Jesus providing your eternal salvation. The Apostle Paul reinforces this point in Ephesians 2 when he says, as for you, you were dead in your sins. That's the status. Whether He didn't even know whether they were healthy or not. You were dead in your sins. It's as simple as that. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive because of his great love for us. Not because of what we did, because of Jesus. It's not our action that makes Jesus do what we want. It's Jesus who loves us, always has been. It's the arrival of Jesus who changes us from sick to saved. So how should we react to this? As we look back on the passage, we see that pretty well everyone who encountered Jesus had a reaction to him in some way or another. What's the reaction of the Pharisees? Verse 34, the Pharisees, these devout followers of the Lord, reject him, uh, followers of the law, reject Jesus. How? It's only by the ruler of the demons that he drives out demons, they say. In other words, Jesus has authority over demons because he's either the chief demon or he's in with the chief demon. Now, this is a key turning point in Matthew because it's the first time that the teachers of the law come out in opposition to Jesus. If only the Pharisees had remembered the scriptures that pointed them to the Messiah. Psalm 146 says, The Lord opens up the eyes of the blind. And here they've seen a blind man, men with eyes opened up. Or the famous prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 42, I will appoint you to be a new covenant for my people, a light to the nation in order to open blind eyes 
So the Pharisees, who claim to be God, uh, claim to be God's followers, come up with the biggest clangor of the New Testament, in my view. The Son of God arrives and they miss the prophecy and mistake him for the devil. If we're to learn anything from their mistake, we are to be ready for God to surprise us even today, even where we have decades of learning under our belt. We must be ready to reassess our lives based on the arrival of Jesus and his words for us today. When Jesus arrives to heal the dead girl, how did the mourners react? They laughed at him. In verse 24, they laughed at him. You could pretty much imagine why no one would expect a person to be revived at their own funeral. But rather than be open-minded, they encounter the Messiah and they stay the same. They encounter the Messiah and their first reaction is to scoff. And it happens throughout the Bible. And it happens still today. People doubt Jesus' ability, don't they? They dismiss him with a laugh. They laugh it off when you tell people about Jesus. They'll probably laugh you off when you side with him too. But as you can see, Jesus isn't worried. He goes on with the important work of God and so should you. And the people who are saved, how do they interact with Jesus? Well, for us as saved people, we would do well to note their reactions. The bleeding woman, she approaches Jesus. Her faith causes her to come close to him, close enough to touch. She wants to share in the power that he has to offer. She doesn't hang back. She gets right in there suggests to me that I need to push for a similar closeness to Jesus, to approach him in prayer, to sit by him in meditation, to bask in his word revealed in the Bible daily, hourly. How close did you approach Jesus this week? You might not be physically bleeding like this woman, but we all have a fatal flaw Without clinging to our Saviour, we are destined for hell. And the dead girl, what happens when she connects with Jesus? In verse 25, she got up. She started living, living her new life. She met with God and her new life began immediately. It happened with you too. You have been brought into a new life because you have put your trust in Jesus. So, how's your new life going? Or have you chosen to stick with old habits, old grudges, old vices, and not come into the new life that Jesus offers? Just as the dead girl was brought into new life, so you who believe have been brought into new life. You are spiritually resurrected. I remember a Christian put it this way to me, your eternal life has already begun. So, are you living life eternally in status and in action as well? We should be doing things that will stand the test of eternity. 
Perhaps it's in this light that we understand the most common reaction in this passage to people who had been saved. They tell others. In verse 26 and verse 31, news went out across the region and in verse 33, the crowd spoke about it. The reaction to Jesus' saving power to his arrival is to tell others about it. So finally, let's draw near to Jesus, our Saviour. Let's allow our lives to be changed by him. And let's tell others about his saving power in our life. Keep offering to tell the story about what a great saviour Jesus is. Oh, don't worry if they scoff or if they don't change. Their change is not your job. It's Jesus that changes people from sick to saved. So show them Jesus and allow them to approach that offer of eternity. Let's pray about that now. Heavenly Father, you offer us a chance to have eternal life in your family. Lord, we are sorry for the things that we have done wrong and we ask for your saving power to bring us into new life. Lord, please help us to live that new life, not in our old habits, but in your family as your people. And please give us courage to tell others about it this week and to approach you more closely each day. In Jesus' name, amen.